Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I just wanted to say you're in the restored broadcasting house. You may have read a bit about it, a lot of nonsense about it, but this is uh, part of, uh, this room is grade one listed. It is the original um, uh, council chamber of broadcasting house where the governors would have met since virtually the start of the BBC so you can only but imagine what's gone on in this room over the decades it's a very interesting room with our great founder overlooking you to make sure that you don't put a foot wrong I just wanted to mention that the new broadcasting to your left as you go out, just have a look at it. Uh, the building of that is now complete and we've taken it over now for technical fit out which takes about a year and we'll begin to occupy it in late 2011 and this building will become the home for BBC Radio, which this building is already, uh, BBC News, all of BBC News and the BBC World Service and Bush House will close in 2012. It will become the world's largest live newsroom and it's um, uh, quite an exciting uh, project and I hope maybe when it's open we'll return Julia and we'll be able to have a tour of it after the, uh, after the event so maybe we'll have another event there but anyway uh, thank you very much for coming and I'll hand over to Julia. Well thank you Donald. Um, we're in this building courtesy of the BBC our partners on names not numbers include BBC Global News and the Financial Times and our CAS Business School and Vodafone and Edelman and our publishing partner because we're publishing the report from last year's Names Not Numbers Symposium today and you have it on your seats is Taylor Bennett the search firm and what is Names Not Numbers a number of you have come up to me and sort of said it's very nice to be here but what is this and in a nutshell you're going to be told by the illustrious panel, all of whom attended and participated in Names Not Numbers. But it is simply an opportunity once a year to hole up in splendid isolation in Port Merion, in the case of UK, and in venues around the world, TBC, to think about the meaning of life, no more and no less, in very good company. And we did launch this report in New York last week, and that gives you a clue as to where we think we may do names, not numbers, outside of the UK in the coming year or so. But without further ado, I'd really like to thank the BBC again and to hand over to Bridget Kendall, who in her many hats for the BBC is the presenter of the forum which broadcasts live from Names Not Numbers along with Hard Talk. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Julia. Um, yes, the, the BBC is a part of the, one of the partners in this venture and I must say I was a novice last year and was a little bemused when I got on a coach rather early on a Friday morning and discovered that I'd be travelling in the company of quite a lot of people who I sort of knew and others whose names I knew but no one who I knew particularly well for seven hours along a motorway and through bumpy roads and over mountains to the far corner of Wales and let's not forget this was the end of February so um, it didn't exactly seem like a drive to Eden but actually when we got there in Port Merion in this beautiful Italian weird surrounding that we all knew from the prisoner we realised that we'd been holed up for a very good reason and there was a sort of hothouse feeling, if you like, 
but also an opportunity to very intensely discuss. The BBC made programmes there. Um, my colleagues on Hard Talk recorded two interviews, and our programme, the Forum on the BBC World Service, did a very uh, interesting and, uh, well, for us, very rewarding programme because the audience was so fabulous, some of whom are here today. Um, here we are in the BBC Council Chambers. We have Lord Reith looking down on us, and it occurred to me, those of us who work at the BBC, it's a sort of taken in uh, with our first breath when we arrive at the BBC, that Lord Reith told us that our duty is to inform, educate, and entertain. And it occurred to me that actually Names Not Numbers is a bit like that, because it's an event that's very much in that joint spirit. It's both good fun and it's good for you. So you get invigorating debate, but you also get a February Welsh air. But there's a lot of fun. So alongside talking about the role of trust in business and politics and debates on privacy and what's the place of an individual in a mass age, there's also a contemplation of shopping for women online mm -hmm. and face transplant surgery and what that means for identity <laughs> and community singing and conjuring tricks and walks on the beach and an arresting theatrical performance. And we're probably about to hear a bit more about that because it's time for me to introduce the panel. And the first of them is Yasmin Alibi-Brown, award-winning columnist on the Independent and London Evening Standard, but also a writer and performer of an extraordinary and very personal one-woman show which she treated us to at Port Merrion's. It was everything that's been said, but I suppose there were some in in really interesting moments and surprises which I wanted to share with you. I mean, here we were, people from very different political um, uh, spaces, but places, um, certainly different occupations, um, obsessions, and so on. And because it isn't structured like a conference, because it's actually incredibly intimate, I don't mean it, I mean, I don't know if it led elsewhere. <laughs> Nobody asked me. Um, but um, uh, but intima intimacy with people you might not uh, ever in your life uh, share a cup of coffee or uh, a few thoughts, because I think whether we like to admit it or not, most of us are quite close-minded, and we tend to stick with people with whom we aren't really going to disagree too violently and have an unpleasant time. And what was interesting is, that act, there's something about the place, maybe, that you do manage to have these quite serious conversations and disagreements, and yet keep a, 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 a kind of link with them, which was a great, great um, um, bonus, really, because so much, I'm a journalist, I'm a columnist. I interview people, I write about people, I'm not usually so close to people with whom I often don't agree. So that was one extraordinary thing. The theme was interesting because... And there were some moments when we were very angry. I remember when, and Philip Blonde isn't here, and I met him, I was hoping he'd be here. When he described the country in the way he saw it, and I shared David Aronovich's absolute kind of rage, as this is not the place I live in. What are you talking about here? Um, so there were moments of, of, of high and low passion, but what was interesting was this intimacy, which I'm very grateful to have been invited to and to share. Moments to remember when Charlie led, Peter led better. Said, talked about how we have to move from a society where we think about two and four to with and by, and that one sentence had me thinking for three nights. 
because there was it was so loaded and you could really rethink life i didn't like um um uh, some of the kind of um uh, more right-wing debates but it was very good to hear them and then i did and i think for me the main theme of numbers not men uh, 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 names not numbers the thing that I really feel very strongly is that when it comes to migration, and I am a migrant, the only way we talk about migration is through numbers. And so the show was really to humanize that and to make it into a story. And it's a very, it's a very um, open, uh, revealing show in, in which I talk about my own life, quite difficult early life and the vulnerabilities, and everybody knows me as a tough commentator, but the most pleasing moment, I say this as a lefty, I was very worried. I thought everybody here lives in their very big brains. Here I am invading their hearts. I don't know how this is going to work. More nervous on this than the performance I did in front of 1600, but the most pleasing moment was to see the eyes of bankers welling up to make a banker cry. Now, you know, <laughs> this year was fantastic. It was just fantastic. But it, it really is unique. I've been to many events in my life and many conferences, as all of us in this room probably have, but there's something here which taps into the whole of you as a human being and, and lets you be and open up in ways that I've never experienced before. And you come away, really, it stays with you. It enters into, into your uh, way of thinking and feeling for quite a long time afterwards. So thank you, Julia, for asking me. And thank you for letting me do the show. <laughs> Sarah Churchill was also uh, there last February. She's senior lecturer in American literature and culture at the University of East Anglia. But she's not just an academic in an ivory tower. She's a seasoned analyst of film and popular culture as well as literature. She's written a book on Marilyn Monroe and her latest project is on Scott Fitzgerald. Sarah, what did you draw from last year? Um, I, I'm struck by the, the Niall Ferguson's quote on the, on the front of the report that it's uh, like Davos with community singing. Um, I think that's probably as good a description um, in, f in five words as, as we're likely to get. The community singing definitely uh, sticks in my mind. And, and um, one of the reasons why I, I find that quote particularly funny is because Niall Ferguson really got into the spirit of the community singing. Um, and, uh, and that was on the first night. And that was, I have to say, that was a high point watching Niall Ferguson um, sing his heart out at the end of the first night. Um, and I, I think that's a, it's a good example of, of what I enjoyed about it so much that, and, it, and it, in a sense, picking up on what Yasmin was just saying, these people who you know through their brains, these people who you know through their contributions to debate, um, to uh, political or cultural analysis, actually getting a chance to get to know them as people and finding out what they're, what they're really like. Um, finding, and yes, um, you know, Philip Blonde annoyed some of us with what he said, but on the other hand, then speaking to Philip Blonde, I found that he's a charming guy, and I would never have known that. I really, really liked him. And I thought, and that in and of itself is instructive, that you can, to remind ourselves that we can disagree with somebody's politics and still like them as a person, that we can start to make those distinctions means that we can start to find bonds again, that we can stop being so polarized. And, and that was actually, I think, the, the experience that I brought from it. I mean, I gave a, I was asked to give a talk on, on Friday um, about the Tea Party in America for um, Democrats abroad, you know, my political affiliation. And really, Democrats are trying to get their head around this, this Tea Party phenomenon and what the hell is going on. Um, 
And, and of course, the Tea Party is about radical individualism. That's what it's about. And it's about not just the radical individualism of the right. It's also about the identity politics individualism of the left. It's, and so the, you get Christine O'Donnell's ads are saying, you know, I, I think her ad is, I'm you. And um, the um, Fox News motto is, you decide. And the, Sarah, all the responses to Sarah Palin are, she's like me. Um, and 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 uh, you know she's 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 the, like us. She's one of us, right? So there there's a notion of collective identity that's being built there, and yet it's all about sameness. It's all about replication. It's all about the about hearing what you want to hear, and of course that's reinforced with the way that the blogosphere works, with the, as we all know, with the echo chamber effect of the blogosphere. They only have to listen to each other. Fox News will confirm exactly what they want to hear, and. And yet, even now, I'm doing a kind of us and them thing, right? That's what they do. I don't do that. When I'm on the, never. I never go for confirmation bias. Of course I do, as Yasmin just said. None of us actually really wants to surround ourselves. It is unpleasant, first of all. It's emotionally unpleasant to be in a state of rage all the time. Um, and constantly, and it's hard work to have to debate somebody and to have to keep defending your own position and to keep explaining your own position. But it's much easier to deal in ideology, to deal in prefabricated ideas, to never actually challenge any of your own beliefs. But, and, and, if, and if one does find oneself in a, in a, in a position of dispute, it can be highly unpleasant. I mean, highly unpleasant. You can feel really attacked. You can feel really um, uh, targeted. And so to actually create a space where it is civil, where it, is, where it was always good fun, and everybody, even when people were really disagreeing with each other, there was a sense of commonality and a sense of common purpose that kept it all um, and, and there was a sense of kind of fair play. I mean, that, that, you, that people are willing to play by certain rules and there weren't, people weren't using cheap shots. There weren't personal attacks. There weren't people were reminding each other through demonstration of what a civil society might look like. And whether we're on the right or the left, it seems to me that there are a great many people who see us disintegrating into an uncivil society. And we have different ideas about how to solve that problem. But to return to a notion of civility, it seems to me, is, is, a, is a shared goal. And it's something that, um, for me, certainly the experience in, in Port Marion was uh, almost uniquely able to, uh, to, to recollect and kind of model for us what that might look like um, with intelligence, with good humor, and with kindness. So um, I, I thought it was a terrific experience. Thank you, Sarah. And Niall Ferguson singing. I'm <laughs> Um, Claire Fox is probably needs a little introduction to many of you. She's the director of the Institute of Ideas. She's a regular panelist on Radio 4's The Moral Maze, probably recorded in this building, isn't it, Claire? And convener of the annual Battle of Ideas Festival, which takes place very shortly, 30th to the 31st of October. Claire Fox. Um, well, this reminds me of Port Merion because um, we were given an option of what we could talk about. And now having heard my uh, colleagues, I realise that what I'm going to say is entirely inappropriate and wrong. So I'm going to carry on. <laughs> so we were asked to consider attitudes to individuality by policymakers. So that's what I'm going to do. And uh, you can work out that this is the sort of thing that we could discuss at Port Merion. Um, uh, I wanted to, uh, I suppose one of, one of the things that does follow on is, is that, that one was allowed to be provocative and to raise issues that you might not be able to raise easily elsewhere and that they were debated and discussed. So let me uh, have a go at doing some of that. Um, in some ways, individuality, and that is at the core, both of next year's, uh, uh, the theme of, 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 um, 
uh, the Port Merion uh, gathering, uh, is, has had a bad press of late. I think because of its ugly sister individualism, which is kind of associated with greed and selfishness and a fractured and broken society. Um, but I am slightly concerned that policymakers coming to say, uh, to, as it were, to, to counter that kind of uh, selfish individualism are actually going to damage individuality and that actually we might all well become uh, numbers, not names. Um, one of the threats that I think we have to individuality at the moment, slightly unlikely, um, is in the new Equality Act, uh, dreamt up by uh, Harriet Harman and now enacted by the new coalition. Uh, there's much to argue against in this legislation. Uh, it's meddling and illiberal uh, and uh, sullies the real aspiration of equality in so many ways. But I think one of the particularly dangerous aspects to it is the equality duty, uh, which demands that public bodies and potentially private uh, societies adhere to every aspect of uh, equality law. And I think this threatens religious freedom. Uh, telling religious societies that they can't discriminate against individuals uh, uh, simply because of their gender or sexuality might sound like a bit of a no-brainer for, for liberals. Um, but actually, I think this is a serious overturning of an important part of Enlightenment thinking that governments should not have the right to determine uh, what private religious groups uh, believe or think and how they organise their memberships and are so constituted. So, you know, I'm worried that legislation that will, might well force religious organisations to follow anti-discrimination guidelines when recruiting their staff, uh, where you get something like the Catholic Church, an organisation that likes its staff, well, you know, to be Catholic, uh, with all that entails, um, uh, and with all that entails. I find myself rather unusually agreeing with the Pope on this question when he said the effect... Uh, <laughs> if he does, I'm excommunicated, no doubt. But anyway, he said... Uh, the effect of some of the legislation designed to uh, achieve equality has been to impose unjust limitations on the freedom of religious uh, communities to act in accordance with their beliefs. And Peter Tatchell, who I admire in many ways, uh, came back to attack the Pope and said the Pope's ill-informed claim that our equality laws undermine religious freedoms suggests that he supports the right of churches to discriminate in accordance with their religious ethos. Um, Tatchell is, of course, correct. The Pope does believe that churches have the right to discriminate in accordance with their religious ethos, but so do I. Because I think that's about the principle uh, from private and, and political sphere for organisations to indeed be free to organise themselves on the basis of what they believe in. I think what's at stake here is freedom of association, the freedom to choose one's company, to choose who one associates with and who one doesn't. And it's very hard as a defence of individual autonomy. And at every stage, because we are moral subjects capable of judgment, actually we discriminate, excluding some people because they're unfeasibly annoying, selecting others maybe because they're kind or funny or interesting. So freedom of uh, association, it seems to me, is a core uh, thing to defend. This came to mind in a debate I did recently um, at the uh, Tory party conference on the big society when I had the temerity to mention that I couldn't think of anything worse than the big society's big lunch initiative um, where we were told that we should all don paper hats, share home-cooked goodies and community jollity with our neighbours, which in my opinion is my idea of hell. I do like some of my neighbours, but not others. And I do want to be able to assert my right to opt out of Cameron's communities with oomph. Um, I think there's a danger that policymakers think that this opting out is the equivalent of being selfish or antisocial behaviour. So I want a new slogan, which is, I'm a name, not a big luncher. 
Um, now, you might think in some ways that Port Merion was a bit like um, the uh, uh, big lunch because we were all forced on a coach and we had to have lunch together a lot. But actually, we were within Port Merion able to discriminate. Actually, by listening, we could work out who it was we admired, what we thought of them, and who we associated with. Um, I think there's a lot to admire in the big society, by the way. I quite like the slogan, People Power. I, I used to publish Living Marxism, and it kind of has a certain appeal. I like the idea of, uh, uh, of rolling back the big state to free up endless armies of individual activists and volunteers that apparently constitute the big society. But I fear that rather this is a recipe for the reconstitution of, um, instead of this being a recipe for the reconstitution of individuality and personal autonomy, it's actually a recipe for clones for, uh, forced to fit into a mould, uh, all shreds of individuality squeezed out. Um, I, I thought it was amusing to find out that they're going to parachute in, and this is to quote from their literature, an expert organiser and dedicated civil servants to ensure people power initiatives get off the ground. I'd just like to ask you, what does one think an expert organiser is? One dreads to think. I presumably not a trade unionist campaigning against the cuts, or indeed a Catholic campaigning against equality uh, law, or indeed me fighting against the, uh, uh, the nanny state. We are told that this new localism empowers, empowers officials to identify local residents, quote, with a particular aptitude for taking part in big society projects, and that then they'll go on, um, go on, to, uh, go on a uh, training course to become community organisers, motivating their neighbours to take part in community schemes. And I can only imagine what kind of state-sanctioned do-gooders and busybodies uh, are going to be produced by this, given the authority to nag anyone who dares miss a tenants association or refuses to join Neighbourhood Watch. This is enforced activism rather than genuine civic relationships. And I think worse than that, uh, really truly dedicated activists in, in society are those who actually, the ones who actually make communities tick, are often irreverent, eccentric, non conformist, actually real characters, real individuals, and I'm fearful that this kind of state-backed activism will emasculate um, those, uh, the only people who will kind of fit the, uh, the training courses will certainly be not those kind of people. So my uh, recommendation to go to Port Merion is, is that you don't have to go on a training course. There might be uh, communal singing, but let me assure you, I did not join in. <laughs> I was not ostracised because I didn't, and I was able to say provocative things and still have a civil row, which is what I really would recommend. So, big society, avoid Port Merion, come along. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. And as you can see, when Claire sings solo, she always has an interesting tune. <laughs> David uh, Aronovich also is... Um, a figure in uh, British society who probably needs little introduction to most of you. Previous incarnation very much of this parish, BBC producer, presenter, editor, you name it. Actually, you seem to have done everything in the corporation. And uh, now commentator to the Times, which doesn't do justice to um, the writing he does everywhere, an eloquent chronicler of our times. David, your views. Um, thanks. You've got a, a good overview, really, uh, in those um, three previous... Uh, speeches of that quality which you get at uh, Port Marion, uh, which is complete randomness. Um, any of that could have gone anywhere and probably did. I certainly didn't expect to jump from Sarah to Claire. It's very good news that you agree with the Pope, Claire. Uh, somebody from Oprah's Day slipped out the back when you said that and went to phone His Holiness to give him the good news. Um, and we're now expecting the new Fox's Book of Martyrs um, uh, as a result. Um, 
Uh, it's entirely true that uh, this is not a new place to me, although I haven't been in it for some years. They used to have the Christmas party here. Do you remember that, Bridget? And then the BBC cut it back for, uh, for uh, reasons of economy. Either that or they just didn't invite me anymore. Um, which, of course, from my point of view, was a good thing, as I'll come on to in a, uh, in a moment. But one of the things that I did here uh, in the BBC was there was a period when I was caught up uh, as many of you may be, but you will be better at it than I am, in the cogs of middle management. Uh, it became part of one of my roles for a while. And one of the things that we did was a quite a lot of management training. These were in the days of Michael Checkland and then John Burt, and management training was quite a big thing back then, and you would bring in the consultants and you do man. And we had to do, a group of us, something called the Belbin Personality Test. I don't know whether many of you have been through this. Anyway, so I was there with a whole group of editors from the same department that I was. And I was confident that, like them, I would come through in the Belvin personality test as a leader. Because, of course, I am a leader. You can see, just like listening to me, uh, etc., that I am a natural, complete leader. Um, as were they. Um, they were all natural and complete leaders. So it was a huge shock when, when they completed the test. Um, all of them were leaders, but I wasn't. Um, I was something called a plant which didn't sound very kind of good, kind of vegetable, kind of, sort of rather slow, etc. But no, what a plant is, essentially, is uh, an innovator. In other words, somebody who likes... Uh, essentially, it describes somebody who's quite clever but has the attention span of a gnat. Um, uh, so you have a new idea, and then before you have to do any of the new idea, you move on very quickly, so some other poor sod has to put it into practice and so on. Um, uh, and that turned out to be very right, because when I became a writer, I realised the extent to which actually that was true um, uh, of me. Um, but it was something else was also true, and I'd been coming aware of it for years, which was, this is also the organisation that produces Ed Reardon's Week. Um, I don't know how many of you listen to Ed Reardon's Week. It's one of my favourite things. Essentially, what it is, is a grumpy, dyspeptic antisocial writer who has an incredible tendency to feel grumpy about the world and so on and essentially that's who I am um, and a lot of a lot of people who are writers recognize that in themselves and a lot of people in the media are like that we tend to focus enormously if you like upon sociability and the argument is about sociability as if we were all leaders and we were all extroverts actually a fairly large proportion of us aren't extroverts at all I am much more comfortable giving a speech like this than I am talking to two or three people separately it really is painful for me to have to do that, not because I have to listen, but because I just don't know where to go and how to look and so on. I mean, it's a, it's a fact. So on the whole, something like Port Marion would be something that I would, on the face of things, absolutely loathe. I mean, absolutely loathe. There's very similar reasons to, to Claire, and I think actually, Claire, you're not a million miles away from me in, in, in a lot of this. Add to that the fact that you have companies called things like Scission there. I'm a writer... <laughs> Now, I know what an incision is and to incise, and I know what an excision is to excise, but I don't know what a scission is. Uh, I, I imagine it comes somewhere from the word cut, the Latin to, to cut. I mean, it must do. I mean, I didn't do Latin, but it's gone. But what is in between an excision and an incision? I mean, I, d I didn't know. And then, 
to find also that you'd have a company called, like, called something like Eurasia Kroll. Now, to me, Eurasia Kroll is a particularly irritating hardy heroine. You know, you can, can just imagine her going across, you know, some moor near Dorchester, etc., wailing about her lost love, etc. Um, it's not a company on the whole. It's not a name you, you, you expect to meet up with. So I, I would have been inclined to have been extremely grumpy at the notion had not somebody with the force of personality of Julia, who I also like a lot, said, no, you've got to come along. And also, I knew that this was a wonderful place to go. But I went there without any expectation of anything beyond the pleasure of Julia's company and also the uh, geographical location itself. The reason why it works in pulling even somebody as essentially grumpy and horrible as me into its, uh, into its more is that essentially what it is 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 a form of unforced socialising, which allows you, over a period of discussion, it allows you to socialise through discussion about other things. I think that's what it does. It allows somebody like me to kind of relax through the business of talking through ideas. You could hear from Claire's presentation that essentially what she has to do before she can relax is give you a five-minute speech about the state of Britain. Okay. <laughs> but once she's done that, she's open for a discussion. Well, a lot, of us, a lot of us actually are quite like that. We have to, we have to go through that process um, several times, actually, in order to be put at our ease. And that's exactly what it is. Through the medium of discussion of issues, and they're good issues too, we could have fun together. We could meet up with people and make contact in a kind of variety of ways. So what it was was a kind of nicely beautiful, stretched out business of socialising at your own pace socialising and discussing at a rate that even, uh, even somebody like me could appreciate uh, uh, over two or three days. And as a consequence, things did happen. Things happened between people. We heard some bloody good speeches. Um, I've heard Simon Sharma and Neil Ferguson in two years. I've seen Yasmin invade um, the space, uh, the, the psychic space of the bankers. Somebody like Yasmin is a space invader. Um, <laughs> Yasmin wants to be in your psyche, and she's a bloody good person to have in your psyche uh, uh, in many ways, and it was an absolutely wonderful performance. Now, she drives me crazy, but in this situation, I thoroughly and completely got her, uh, and I think that's the kind of benefit of it. So I suppose this is an argument by the uh, introvert, by, the, the, by somebody who uh, is grumpy and asocial, for society, for coming together, for discussing, and it has all the problems that Claire kind of suggests to it, you know, that being a, both of us classic not meists, this is an, a yes me situation in which the not meists can take part. And I think that's a kind of very valuable thing. And if those of you, there are people here who are wondering about whether they should consider coming next year uh, when the event is held, all I can say is yes, but please, please, Julia, this time, don't have so many people that I can't be in the village. You know, we, don't, we all want to be in the village, don't we? We all want to, want to be by the clock house or something like that. But nevertheless, I do recommend it to you. Thank you very much, David O'Reilly. Well, we've got a bit of time for discussion and um, hopefully for some questions from the floor too. I wanted to pick up, uh, first of all, on something you said, Sarah, as our resident American, <laughs> um, about um, getting beyond polarised debate mm. and um, having a genial discussion. Mm. You even talked about fair play, so it immediately made me think, is this sort of venture something that can only easily happen in this country, or could you imagine it happening in the United States as well? How British was it? Um, that's a good question. I think 
the, I'm not, I'm not going to cede Britain um, the, the, so, the a monopoly on fair play or on, uh, on civil discourse. I think America has gotten very polarized. We all know that. I mean, I, there's a real problem. Um, and, but uh, on the other hand, as, as somebody who, who teaches American history as well as American literature, because you can't really teach one without the other, um, you know, I would say that the problem of America has always been the problem of e pluribus unum. I mean, it is, it is a particularly American problem. How do you get one out of many? Um, and America is a big place. That's part of the problem. Um, and as we all know, it is, it is very regionally divided. Um, and, but it has also, it has never really, I mean, look, there's two, there's two stories of America. And I always say this when I'm asked about this, that, that whether or not we agree with them, the fact of the matter is that Christian conservatives have a legitimate story uh, about a, a founding idea of America, and it's a legitimate version of American history. I disagree with it profoundly. I disagree with what it wants to create. It is theocratic. It's neo-Puritan. It's tribal. It has, you know, but it has a right to exist, and it is a narrative, um, and it's a story about what America means. The problem is the other story about what America means is much closer to a British notion of what of what society might mean, which is a post-enlightenment, classically liberal. Um, idea of a, of a land that tolerates dissent um, in exactly the ways that, that people are talking about. Those two versions of America have been in constant conflict since the country was founded. Um, they were in conflict throughout the American Revolution. The, I mean, everybody forgets, I mean, I've been talking about this with the Tea Party, but with the, everybody talks about the Constitution. It took them 11 years to write the Constitution during a civil war, and the Articles of the First Attempt co completely collapsed. The Articles of Confederation collapsed. So this is not something that happened without an enormous amount of conflict. And the same story erupted again in the Civil War. The Civil War was not only a question about slavery, it was a question about states' rights versus federal rights. That was what created the Civil War. It happened again with the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925. It happened again with McCarthy in the 50s. And now it's happening again with the, with the Tea Party. So it's something that America has never managed to pull itself together on. I think that Britain has, for, and I'm not a, an expert on, on British history, but, the, but I've, and, uh, you know, I've lived here for 11 years. It seems to me that there is more of an organic sense of what it means to be British. That it, it, there isn't, it doesn't seem to me that it's riven with quite the same kind of polarizing these, these, these different narratives about what it means. But as we've just heard, there are certainly competing versions of what a British society ought to look like. As you say, you, know, you were infuriated by Philip Long's description of a country that you didn't see. Well, I think that's, it's a, that's a very similar process to what's happening in America. Sarah Palin sees America in a way that is profoundly alien to the way that I see America, but it doesn't mean um, that that's not there. I think that what we need is precisely these kinds of conversations in order to, to rediscover what that shared identity might be and, and what a civil discourse might entail to actually find those points of commonality uh, to emphasize a, a similarity that acknowledges difference rather than trying to, to override it or, or, to, or to ignore it altogether. Yes, and what about you? You're both someone who is very much of um, a voice from within here, but you started your life from without in Uganda. I mean, this is the interesting thing. I think the difference between the U.S. and and the U.K. We have we we have been actually a, a, a nation made by migration, but we have chosen not to tell that story about ourselves. Whereas the U.S. has. So in some ways, as a Uganda nation, friends who went to live in America within three months were calling themselves American. It took me, I think, till my daughter was born 18 years ago whose father is English, to really say it in a natural way rather than a defiant way. So it's different. 
But in, in the end, I think there is a way that you can belong here because there isn't this pressure that you have to be American in a particular way. You can be yourself and still feel at ease. Maybe I'm talking as a Londoner. Maybe I am talking about London. But I certainly feel this is the first place in, my, in the whole of my life that I really belong. In spite of all the fights I have with the country that I live in, this is the place I really feel I belong. But I think what America has, and I think this is the Port Marion experience, they ha they're very good at civil society in, uh, in, in neighborhoods and localities, which we're not. Um, so, in a sense, I think Jonathan Friedland in, in his book wrote very movingly about that, you know, how we could become like that. But I do understand what Claire is saying. You know, I would hate it if it became you ha that you had to become this person who went to street parties and cooked cookies for everybody. You, once you say that to anybody British, they run away from the idea. Um, so I think we have to be very careful not to impose systems on, a, on us, although we're fragmenting in a terrible, terrible way at the moment, which is only going to create further pressures um, and alienate people, and people are alienated in some ways, I think. One of the reasons I was struck by this was myself having come, when I came back from working in the United States, I felt very strongly this was a place where there's a national conversation, and perhaps it's partly a, a, a factor of size, that it's small enough and within one time zone, so that you can. And um, it has a very clear sense of where the center, uh, the capital city of um, uh, England is anyway. But you know, times are changing. Scotland and Wales, where Port Merion takes place, are beginning to have different views of themselves. But I, I, I brought this subject up partly because next year, this, this coming year, 2011, the subject will be citizen and community. And so, um, following on from what you were saying, Claire, you know, last year we held Port Merion within the context of an election that was coming. We thought we might know the outcome. We knew there was bad pain ahead in the economy. Um, actually, it turned out a little differently from what most people predicted. I remember us having a long discussion on the coach, David, about the possibility of a coalition government. I don't think we ever thought that it would really... It didn't, I said, no. ever, 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 ever be reality, and certainly not that it would be... You know, Vince Cable this morning on the radio defending the government's position ahead of the CBI conference. I mean, what new territory, what new land do we now inhabit? So, um, in this new world of cuts, the polarisation that Sarah was talking about, um, which Port Merion avoided last year, what do you think, Claire? Do you think it's going to be genial dissent this year, or is it going to descend into knives and passion of a different sort? Well, I mean, just to say that I, I'm not as opposed to polarisation as other people. I mean, people do have different opinions. <laughs> funnily enough, we know. <laughs> I'd, 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 hate, I'd hate to. I'd hate to. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I, 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 let's put it this way: I can't stand anodyne consensus, and um, uh, I, you know, the idea that we've all got to kind of like get rid of our hard edges so that we meet in the middle. Well, that might be a kind of coalition, mate. Wouldn't it? Don't worry. I mind. hated um, three quarters of what you said. Just yeah, now. Yeah. hated it. That's fine. Uh, no, no, but what I was going to say was, what, where, but where I do agree with the spirit um, is, is that we don't want to caricature each other, which is a completely different thing. And I think that's one of the problems. I actually think, if anything, there's been a bit of a... I mean, I don't, I don't know what the impact of the recession, the cuts and the dealing with the recession will be. Uh, um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, Britain has this sort of... 
we have a, a, a national conversation geographically, because I do think there's certain things that have happened that are worrying. One is I think there is a huge gap between the political and cultural elites and the mass of people. And I don't mean how they live. I don't mean the usual idea of, um, you know, they're rich and everybody else is suffering. I actually mean the views of the elites about ordinary people is often, you know, completely far removed from the reality. That's what I was trying to say about the activists they talk about. You almost think, have you ever met a community activist? They're not as you imagine. They're all a bit mad, um, in a good way. Um, and, you know, but even the kind of bigot gate, I think, I mentioned it in my, you know, gave a real insight, I think, into that kind of like, oh my God, I met an ordinary person. What, what, oh dear me, that woman. Now, I'm not having a go at Brown. I'm making the point you get that feeling all the time, that there's this huge gap between the elites. I also think that there's been two, and this is from my side, as it were, I think the liberals, those of us who consider ourselves to be liberals, have become incredibly complacent. And we kind of just all, all assume we all know what we're talking about. And that can lead to a really conformist atmosphere. And you do know that there are certain things you can't say at certain dinner parties without being kicked out. And that is unhealthy politically, because I do think then you have a set of orthodoxies that you know you're not allowed to challenge, or you'll be considered to be a heretic. And I, I, I know that people think that I am a contrarian, um, but that is because there are so many orthodoxies that you only have to go against some of them and, they, and people think you're doing it for attention. Whereas actually it might be just that you disagree. And you get into a situation where some of the things you want to say, people will say, oh my God, you're in the hands of big business and you're a George, but you know, I'm a bit skeptical on climate change, to get that out as one of the kind of heresies of our day. Um, I do not go along with all of environmentalist uh, rhetoric. It's not that I'm a denier, just in case anyone wants it. But that's the point is I feel I have to say I'm not a denier. I'm not working for George Bush. Yes, we do get some sponsorship from Shell, but I was thinking this before I got the money. I just decided I might as well take the money as everybody thought I was in the hands of big oil. <laughs> take it for God's sake, Claire, you need it. Uh, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I just think for me, polarization is good or rather Imagining that we don't disagree is bad because we do disagree. And I hopefully what, if you want, this economic situation throws up is an opportunity for us to ask some deep and hard questions about things that we've just nodded through. Yeah. Just say one thing, though, about the polarization. I mean, look, when I, when I talk about polarization, I'm not talking about an easy consensus either, but that the polarization is precisely from those two orthodoxies. So each group has circled its wagons around its accepted orthodoxies, and within that, there's a strong tendency toward confirmation bias as they sit around telling each other that they're in vast agreement, and they don't talk, so there, there is not disagreement. So I think you and I are actually in agreement, and I'm not going to polarize but against I'm you. But totally, I totally disagree <laughs> with some of what, what Claire said, at least two things. Um, one, that you know we can just say what we want in the public space, because actually we can't. I can look around this room and some of you might have bad hair and you might think, you know, my breasts are sagging or whatever. We're not saying these things to each other because in the social and public space there has to be some concern. And I totally disagree with Claire when she says what she says about the equalities legislation. That too makes for a better and more civilised society. So I, I don't want people to run away with the idea that we agree, because we don't. <laughs> and she likes that, so here we are. Julia, you wanted to say something? When we launched in New York, there really was a row 
And uh, if you listen to the podcast, you know, Michael Wolfe, who does row with everybody, was fabulously rude at the beginning. And then Simon Sharma picked up the bug and was really quite, you know, full on with Chris Anderson of TED. So I think Americans are much more comfortable with the row than the Brits. The other thing that we've tried to do with the names, not numbers, is celebrate plurality, which is you do put a banker next to an artist, next to a writer, next to an academic. And I think that's something reasonably new in Britain, the idea that you can, in fact, get your commonality. Um, and just a quick point on Yasmin's uh, celebration of intimacy, I realized somewhat to my horror that the original strapline for Names Not Numbers was individuality in a mass age, and that if you said that really quickly, or after a glass of wine, it was individuality in a massage. <laughs> could, we, um, could we have Sarah, Sarah Palin come, and could we have Peter Tatchell, and can, we, uh, can I sponsor my brother, he's a librarian and a storyteller to children, so we have the elite and the ordinary. That sounds a brilliant idea. I pass that idea on to Somebody wants to know Sarah. Somebody invite her. <laughs> yes. Thanks. It's a, a question for Sarah and my boss, Claire Fox, um, and, and as to whether you do agree or not, because it's actually an interesting question, because the way I understand you, Sarah, what you're saying is uh, the problem is we actually don't understand what we disagree about. Uh, and this is the, the, what's interesting about what you're saying is that the moment in history that we're at is there's a huge amount of confusion as to what's the way forward. And in order to work out a way forward, we actually need to work out what it is that we think is important and understand what we disagree about. And that's where the polarization is often very unhelpful because it takes a very sort of personal character, not about your hair or your breasts or whatever uh, uh, attribute, etc. But actually about, you know, just sort of things like cultural things about what you think about uh, the environment, what you think about healthy eating, what you think about exercise or whatever. These sorts of things have come to dominate public discussion. Whereas the bigger ideas and the bigger issues we don't really touch on. Um, so to what, but it, what then is uh, interesting about what you're saying is pulling back from the fray, as it were, to identify what the important issues are and what we do agree about or disagree about uh, and how that might be done. And I, I love, uh, I'm not saying this because I have to, I love Claire's style uh, and her combative approach because that you know, gets the debate going. But possibly you are ag agreeing to some extent, and therefore I'm very interested in what Claire's going to say uh, to understand what, you know, whether she actually does disagree with you and how we might you know, get to a different place. Because otherwise it, will be, it might be more civil, but it will be both annoyingly dull. More importantly, we will not you know, move forward in any way. Because as soon as you start having this conversation, as you, and, and sort of what you were saying about being a denier, labels and assumptions start to fall over very quickly. So if I say I think that we need to be able to find a common ground to be able to speak to each other, that is not at all to say that we must find some conformist consensus yeah. that we're in this kind of, you know, totally united. Uh, on the contrary, it's about being able to, to find a way to articulate what it is that I think. And I think at first, and then to be able to have the conversation about where we agree and where we disagree. And that the disagreement itself can be a point of, of contact. I mean, Claire. Can I ask you, sorry, sorry, yeah. Actually, I think you know, the danger in what you're saying is uh, it becomes all about the form. 
you know, uh, the space to have the conversation, which is why I, compl I completely disagree with Yasmin. Uh, but anyway, we'll leave that to one side. But, but what you're talking about is it, it sounds too much like form. You know, how, how can we create the space to be civil and, and talk to one another? Whereas what I'm asking, I think, is a deeper thing that's actually possibly contained in what you're saying, is how we draw back and, and what approach do we take to having a more substantial understanding of the issues that can lead to a more content-led uh, way forward, which may involve a clash of ideas. I hope that it would. But we need to draw back from the existing dull debates that are going nowhere. But I no. think it's really important, even when we completely and strongly disagree, that language matters. I do not want to see the return of some words that we no longer use. Language matters. And how you talk about the strongest uh, um, issues in, and disagree violently, I still think in the public space we have to find a way of not using the kind of words that we once thought were okay to use. There are limits. There have to be limits. Three stories. I totally agree that words matter, but, I, but I'm, again, we're going to disagree on where that goes. I mean, I'm a literary critic first and foremost. That's what I do. We're, there is nothing more important than words. We don't have ideas without words. We don't have debate without words. That We need the language. Um, but I would say uh, I, I've actually been thinking about this um, some of you will know Ambrose Bierce's uh, Devil's Dictionary, which is an American classic where he um, does these kinds of tongue-in-cheek definitions. And, um, and again, this is for the Tea Party thing, but I, I was using his definition of conservative. Ambrose Bierce's definition of conservative is a statesman who is enamored of existing evils as distinguished from the liberal who wishes to replace them with others. Um, which I actually think is a very useful definition and precisely for what you're saying is that it, it gets us to rethink what we think those labels mean and to actually start to, to take them apart and say, okay, what is it that I really believe? And what is it that I actually think is going to take us forward? But I'll give you an example in terms of words um, not being used. And I am going to now use the most verboten word of all, um, the totemically powerful N-word, um, and I'm going to use it. Because as many of you know, Joseph Conrad wrote a book called The Nigger of the Narcissus. That's the name of the book. And he wrote a preface to it, which is an Ars Poetica about what he thinks literature should do. And it's this wonderful preface. And it's the preface to The Nigger of the Narcissus. And that's what it's called. And um, apparently in the Netherlands, they've just um, republished this book. And they have called it The N-Word of the Narcissus. That is the name of the book. So yes, language matters. Um, we have to recognize its power. And we have to recognize its ability to name exactly the kinds of things that you're talking about. In answer to your question, I don't know how we do it, except that I think we're doing it right now. David, do you want to come in? Um, I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm not too bothered about whether I agree or disagree or whether people agree or disagree. I mean, as long as they, as long as they kind of, I mean, I, I was having all kinds of little fantasies as we went on, like what it must have been like in the Fox household deciding to where to go on holiday. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> no, 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 I mean, if your brothers and sisters were anything like you, Claire, it must be kind of an interesting uh, sort of uh, a moment and uh, should have been recorded. Um, uh, listening also to this question about, uh, I think Sarah's right about uh, the question of, if you like, kind of false polarisation. Well, the New York Times did a big uh, a study, or the booksellers did a big study, showing that there were a whole bevy of books from the right wing, which would have the subtitle, How the Left Has Buggered Up America, and a whole b lot from the left saying, How the Right, with some, how the right, and nobody bought across the genre. So what you get is two groups who read, think, talk entirely within their own sets and never kind of cross over. It is not a matter of agreement or disagreement, it's a matter of whether or not you have a conversation at all, and whether you're in a position, whether you're in a position to discuss it. And 
Obviously, I'm a sort of fairly big advocate for the idea there is discussion. I'm also a fairly big advocate for the idea that we have significant cultural differences between countries and between peoples about how that's done. Uh, Bridget has this uh, paper here called Deutschland Land der Ideen, which I imagine is Germany Land of Ideas, sort of sitting in front of her. So she's obviously been paid by the German embassy to come and sit here. Sort of, uh, and I was thinking about watching the French demonstrations, and one of the points of contrast with Britain, uh, these French demonstrations, there's an amazing interview with a French student last week, a French student, and he was absolutely incensed, and his people around him were incensed, and they were prepared to go to the barricades, and all these young people around them, on the issue of pensions. Um, to, I, I, I'm not joking. If you say to my 20-year-old daughter the question of the word pension, it's going to be 40 years before she even thinks about it, and so on. She really doesn't care, let alone go to the barricades about it. It just isn't going to happen. You think, that's a really big kind of cultural difference that we're, that we're talking about there. There are really big, very, still very significantly different ways of looking at things. And thinking about the theme forward to the next Port Marion, this idea of community, etc. We know, in a sense, what animates it, which is the idea of, is there, can there be something like, akin to, the big society? Because the thought of the big society is actually present in almost all political parties' philosophies at the moment. And yet, you look around yourself, you can see the impulse which uh, animates it, and yet you don't see any significant corresponding desire amongst people, generally, to be it. And so the big fear that you have is instead of the big society, you get the withdrawal of the state and you get what I would call the small society, the smallest society of all, which is whereby you don't have anybody taking responsibility for looking after the people who effectively fall behind uh, and have nobody to look after them. That's your, that's your, kind, of, that's your kind of worry. That's the, you know, this is, is the kind of harbinger of the debate. By the time we get there in March, will there be something that we can look at and say, yes, this is going to come out of it, or will we be looking at that and saying, no, this is not for the British, and I include the Scots and the Welsh uh, in this kind of general, I don't think we're so different in, in, in this regard, that actually this isn't going to fly. I should be interested to see what that group makes of it by the time we get there. Claire, last year, the, the, one of the big themes was the question of trust which came up a lot in the context of politics and media, but also business. Um, Neil Ferguson talked to us about trust and banking and how without it, the world simply doesn't go around. Um, what do you think the big theme of next year will be? I suppose at this point one might say fairness, but maybe by next February we'll be thinking about something else. Um, I, I, well, I don't know that fairness is a very helpful term. I mean, we, I, I, in some ways, I hope that's not the theme because we could just get stuck in it. Uh, I don't know what it means. I, I think actually what David said is, is exactly, I mean, we really are going to look at what society is going to be like in the midst of this. And I think um, one of the things that we, we might want to note as well is, is that um, I, I, I mean, just as the broad theme of, of names, not numbers, and the individuality point that I made is, I, I think that we should remember that freedom and a free society is also dependent on economic prosperity. I mean, you can't have freedom and choices without that. So one might want to be nervous about the fact that, first of all, we don't seem to have a very strong intellectual attachment to freedom. I think lots of freedoms have been eroded recently from free speech. Uh, uh, um, uh, lots of things that we should have held on to have gone. And that in an economic challenging time, there's a danger 
that the age of austerity, which by the way is not an economic term, it's a moral term, uh, becomes a way of telling us that we have to you know, tighten our belts and live a less free life. So I think we should explore that. Um, I just wanted to defend um, form, actually, against my colleague, but, but also to, uh, re referring to something that David said at the beginning. Um, and this might, might get onto the kind of trust in business as well. Um, I actually um, wrote about this in the, the introduction, but one of the things that's interesting about Port Merion is, that does work, is that there is a danger of enforced networking. Um, and, and there can be nothing worse than when you're in a business networking environment. Because you can just go around and swap cards and nobody knows what it's for. And maybe somebody like me is thinking, might this lead to sponsorship? And maybe another person's trying to get business opportunities and so on. But if you actually um, base networking around content, which is your point, David, which is if you've, if you've got something to talk to people about, um, then actually networking can be uh, actually much more meaningful. And the reason I say that is because um, I think it's actually a really good place for... Uh, business people to go in some ways because there is uh, a danger that uh, business actually keeps its head down and kind of does lots of corporate social responsibility projects and kind of proves it's nice. Um, but I would actually argue that business or the corporate world or is part of civil society and needs to get its act together and have something interesting to say. And one of the things that I thought was interesting at Port Merion was you got the opportunity to network with business people over ideas rather than over their business, and over their ideas about trust in big business. I mean, I think we should have more trust in big business. As it happens, I think the anti-banking rhetoric ends up just being hopelessly immature and silly. But, it, and it can lead to us just saying we don't trust anyone to do anything. But it doesn't matter what I think about that. All I'm saying is, is that I had some really interesting discussions with business who completely disagreed with me on that. And the main thing was, was that we had something to talk about. So. I, I just I think in that sense form can be important because even if you're disagreeing, whatever way you approach these topics, there's something to talk about and, and there's some content that gives you the opportunity to not be on a big lunch exercise but actually to be having a meaningful exchange and you learn something because you listen in a way that you don't as the New York Times reviews, you actually think oh my caricature of this banker or my caricature of this uh, you know heart on sleeve, you know, wishy-washy liberal, has been challenged by the fact they've just said something far more interesting than I've ever thought before. I might have to reconsider. Always a good thing. Um, any more contributions from the floor? Hey, with English, English pen. Um, I mean, Claire, I sort of feel like we completely agree about free speech 99.9% .9 of the time. But religion, I'm, I'm so surprised by your sort of confidence, given this emphasis on individualism and eccentricity and the room for... This, as you say, community activists tend to be really weird, idiosyncratic people, and that's good. That, that's, 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 that's a bit of public value there. Religions don't necessarily cater to individualism. So you and the Pope, your new best friend, you, I'm not sure that, you sh that he really shares this, this, this vision <laughs> of a society in which individuals can stand up and be counted and can shout out and complain. I mean, he himself, in, in his former incarnation, supported the continued existence of the indexed Librorum Prohibitorum, the, the list of banned books, which, which still has some moral force, according to him, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger. So this idea that religions, therefore, um, can, be a sort of, can, can have a kind of freedom, as we have an individual freedom of speech, that religions, religious groups, and religious leaders can, can continue to determine the actions, the views of their, of their followers, and that they should somehow sit aside from other human rights law or other civil codes 
to me seems to sit really oddly with your otherwise very sort of pure emphasis on individualism. Well, I don't want to get us or um, I don't want to distract the discussion in relation to this, but um, I, I am arguing in defence of religious freedom and freedom of association, and that requires one to appreciate that the members of private institutions will have their own rules. I mean, it's a, it's a Lockean position. It's not like I made it up. Um, I, or it's re rather well rehearsed by greater minds than mine, is my point. Um, and the, the reason why it's important is because I do think, I mean, I, I, I had a kind of interesting debate in a student union once where the, N, the, the NUS were basically had been involved in a big row at the Christian union because the Christian union wouldn't adhere to a kind of what had been imposed on them as a, a no platform position, which was that they were basically, the Christian Union were told that they weren't allowed to have a constitution that said that um, homosexuality was a problem, you know, and so there was a big row going on. And I said, look, what's the point? I mean, they're not the Christian Union if they don't think that. Now, I think the Christian Union are barking, right? That's not the point. But I understand the importance of defending the Christian Union with its slightly barking ideas to be able to organize as a Christian Union. Because if you make the Christian Union conform to the kind of rather more you know, liberal tenets of, of kind of, uh, 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 of, of free, freedom and uh, uh, freedom in sexuality and so on, they're not the Christian Union. It's the reason I wouldn't join the Christian Union. But people are free to join and have wrong views, that's my point, right? And that's a very straightforward point. I think in general, we've got to be a bit more trusting of people having wrong views, wrong beliefs. When I say wrong, I say in inverted commas because this could equally apply to me. Um, that is, in, the in a way, the basis of individuality. That was what I was talking about. The ability to discriminate in private societies to associate with people that you agree with. Freedom of belief, freedom of conscience is the basis of tolerance of any free, loving citizen, right? And I think that we're giving up on it. I'm, I'm nervous that liberals just go, all religions are a problem, we must clamp down on them. I think the attitude to the Pope's visit was worrying from some of my colleagues and my peers. I'm not sure that the Pope is or ends in the same position. I think the Pope... Yes, well, obviously, I was making a joke. Yeah. I, obviously, the well, Pope and I don't really agree, just quoted him then. <laughs> the Pope does not agree with me on abortion, on you know, free societies. No, obviously it's a reactionary, right-wing leader of an authoritarian church. I know all that, but who cares? That was not my point. The person from Oprah's day has just gone out to phone again. <laughs> <laughs> forget it, Benedict, forget it. But I do think that next year they should, there should be a session on religion. I mean, you know, as, as not just about, because we've had several people in the current government saying religion is going to be at the heart of this civil society, which I think we need to be discussing more than there is just no national discussion about this. I speak as a practicing Muslim, a wine-drinking practicing Muslim, <laughs> um, but, but there, there you know, doesn't seem to be any, it's just been accepted that religions are best prepared to make the big society and actually we should be talking about this because there are so many things that could happen as a result good and some very bad if you if you really go because I think it was Baroness Wasi who said um, this government does religion because remember Blair uh, Campbell said we don't do religion and I think they've gone big time on this and I think there are implications for the kinds of things we're here talking about 
um, that we need to be thinking uh, when we want a better society. When you give that much power to religions, they will, like all groups, they will abuse that power. And we need to talk about it, I think. The, you know, the major religions that we're talking about, particularly the Abrahamic religions, disagree so violently that they're in a state of armed conflict. Um, so at what point do we put those, if we're talking about the Abrahamic religions particularly, at what point do we put those three religions at the center of a political discourse and say, okay, you guys who are actually so angry at each other in your most extreme views that you are prepared to go to arms over this, let's put, you guys sort it out. That's a good idea. I mean, that seems to me, it seems, exactly. It actually seems to me, it seems to me insane when you, once you start thinking about it that way because they are precisely so polarized and they are precisely not willing and, and because of that point about belief that Jonathan's making, I mean that, and, and Claire as well, I mean that what makes them who they are is the disagreements. That's what defines them um, in relationship to each other and you only have to look at what's happening in America right now um, to see where it would go. I mean it seems to me, it, it seems to me an absolutely bonkers idea. I think it's the and I, I absolutely agree with Claire about protecting freedom of religion. That's not what I'm talking about. But I, I also believe in the Establishment Clause, which Christine O'Donnell was so surprised to find out is in the First Amendment. Um, I believe that there is a reason why the separation of church and state in America has worked. Now I know that there's a different um, relationship to religion here, but of course this, there is a state religion here, and and that seems to me a very different but it's not question. Just that. We now have three Muslim state-funded schools where the girls are expected to be fully burqa'd. Yeah. My mother will be turning in her grave. We are funding this. How is this possible? And it is because we are now doing religion. Yeah. So we need to talk about this. I don't know where Julia's gone, but it's a <laughs> big suggestion it's on the agenda. On the, to put it on the I agenda. Agree. We don't have too much longer. More contributions from the floor? Anybody? Yes, the hand at the back. My name's Antonia Cox. I was a lead writer at the Evening Standard, and I stood for election at the, for the Conservatives uh, the last, in May. Um, I'd just like to try and rescue the idea of the big society from the caricature that uh, Claire Fox gave earlier on. Yes, it is fantastically difficult to get across to people what it's about, but I think we have to start with the kinds of things that people do anyway, whether it's going along to... The, the parents' association, whether it's looking after the old lady in the black of, block of flats opposite, as Sophie and I have talked about. It's these kinds of things that people do anyway. These, what politicians have to do is give people credit for what they're doing there. Stop seeing them as something that they, you do on the margin of your life while your, your work and your immediate family are much more important. And, and, and build upon this. I was with a group of charities the other day where you could begin see that they were liking the fact that what they do is now being recognized and that there should be a greater ambition for whether it's Meals on Wheels or, 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 or helping with prisoners when they come out um, of prisons. The point about the big society is that it's a bad slogan, it's a bad name, but there is something there on the margins of what we, what we, probably everybody in this room does in their daily lives that we have to build upon. And I think that, rather than the kind of aggressive, bossy kind of community activists that um, that were being caricatured, is 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 what the vision is. Peter York, I think we should do something about propaganda, delusion, and ignorance. I am a great, well, admirer is not the word, 
I study Anne Coulter closely. She is a fantastic beast. And such a thing might happen here. And I think at every point, not to wish to sound like an intelligence square debate, in every session we should ask people where they think we're starting from. Do you know what we jointly and severally be believe is actually the case? Because I think that's fantastically revealing. Because what we thought was going to be a perfect market in information has become exactly the opposite. The fragmentation of information means people believe all the fantastic conspiracy theories that David described in his book. And some of the oldest chestnuts of all have come back as a function of all that. So we should ask all the time, what do we believe? In Polly Toynbee's book um, about the over-rich, she did a very clever thing, which was corral some of the over-rich into group discussions and ask them what they thought was the threshold of the top 10% of income earners. And they hummed and hawed and bit their lips and said, well, it could be as low as 120,000, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then she asked them, well, you know, what about what was the point of, 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 of the, the poverty line for a couple? And they hummed and hawed and bit their lips and said, God, that could be 24,000. So, so I think we should always be asking ourselves what we think is actually the case. Where do we, you know, where are our assumptions grounded? How do they compare? There's a thing called Six Cats Lives or something on the television. I can't remember what it is. You know, where they where they uh, they pit comedians against <laughs> against survey information. So let's do that. I don't know. As I say, I've been following this Tea Party thing, and there's a woman called Sharon Angle who's running in, in Nevada against uh, Harry Reid, who's the current Senate Majority Leader. And, um, and Sharon Angle announced that when they said that she was too socially and fiscally conservative, she said, well, you know, they said the same thing about Thomas Jefferson. And that's why, it's, you know, it's okay that I'm too socially and fiscally conservative. And the reporters all looked at her and nodded. And I was screaming <laughs> at the television. They did not bloody say that about Thomas Jefferson. He was neither socially nor fiscally conservative. They, that's a pure fiction. They didn't. In fact, John Adams ran against Thomas Jefferson on the basis that he was a radical atheist. That's, that was, so he was smearing him as an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. And there's Sharon Angle saying she can say whatever she wants about Thomas Jefferson, and people are so ignorant that they simply didn't know that it wasn't true. And they're cherry-picking. They're, you know, the evidence, even when they are factually correct, but for the most part, they're just making it up out of whole cloth. And Ann Coulter, absolutely, you know, I thought Ann Coulter was as bad as it could get, and then they gave us Glenn Beck. And, it, and, and, and it's pure fiction. I mean, it's not even just conspiracy theories. They just say anything. And people sit there nodding and going, yeah, it must be true. So absolutely. I mean, Juan Williams, you know, at what point is there going to be a notion of impartiality and objectivity that is actually measuring something that we might call the truth? Because it's still out there. I, I'm convinced. Call me a reactionary, but I am convinced that there is something the called truth the truth. Is out there. I believe it. Star Trek, exactly. <laughs> Julia, you missed one of the suggestions that we made. That uh, religion. You have to get religion on the agenda. And propaganda. I agree. Uh, hi, I'm Nico McDonald. I was at Port Marion in the first year. Um, I, I'm interested in the kind of arc or narrative, if you like, across events, and typically one uh, arrives at an event albeit having been on a coach and uh, having talked to people, but not necessarily, and this is a bit in the spirit of Peter York's comment, not necessarily kind of on the same page in terms of where the discussion one is at is at. And I wonder to what extent uh, the conference could 
brief people, I know everyone here is busy and so on, uh, about the discussions and debates such that they kind of might start at a higher level. And I, I know with the Battle of Ideas, uh, uh, Claire rather enthusiastically publishes on their website lots of readings that people might do. Do people read them or not? I don't know. Um, you know, is this just me being idealistic about how we might do things? On the other hand, the sort of denouement, uh, 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 names not numbers, um, in the first year at least, published uh, essays or articles based on the talks that have been given, which seem to be a valuable way to capture the ideas and move the discussion on. Is the value in that? Do people read these things? How do we, and should we be trying to make this more of a sort of longer term conversation? Well, this, it's been, been a great opportunity to have a sort of mini Port Merion here this morning in London um, and a taste of where, what might happen in the, in, in the next year when we, those of us who are going to be there gather on those coaches to go to Port Merion. It's a, just putting together some of the things we've heard. Um, I have to start with Peter York, really, challenging our assumptions, propaganda, illusion and ignorance lay out the framework of where we think the discussion should begin before we get underway. Um, Claire, challenging orthodoxies, beware of uh, pigeonholing everybody into conformities. Uh, Yasmin, religion. We've had the Pope invoked a lot this morning too. I don't know if you can swing that one for us. Um, but it would be very nice but to have him along. Can. If anyone can. <laughs> And oh, the, <laughs> but uh, uh, I think the, uh, the underlying theme this morning, which fits very well into what the theme will be uh, next time round, which is civil society, community and citizens, is what's going to happen to this country? What Ooh. sort of society is Britain going to become under the economic pressures that it's in? And I thought it was very interesting when we started to talk about religion that um, we very quickly... Sarah brought up, as she put it, the Abrahamic religions, that it's actually very hard to have that conversation without thinking, where does Britain fit into the rest? And um, for me, that would be um, a welcome challenge to add to those that we have. You know, do we think of ourselves as more part of Europe, because we're all sort of in this together? Or are we going to become more closed in and have more of a conversation with ourselves? Is there going to be a feeling that everybody, from bankers to welfare mothers, has to pull together? Because we are all part of the same country, and we're all in the same mess together. Or will people become more polarised? And are we going to have to look a very long way away, across oceans, to places like China, to look for solutions? Or possibly even other models? Bits of societies, things going on in India, Latin America, to try and work out what it is that we're going to become. Well, that's maybe far too big a challenge for one Port Merriam. But that's where we're going to leave it this morning. There's still a little time to talk to each other, to talk to the panel if you'd like to. And our thanks very much to Names Not Numbers, to Julia Hobsbawm for gathering us here today. Thank you. Thank you.